0: Marketplace is brought to you by you. Yes, the most important piece of our budget is donations from you, our listeners. We call the people who donate Marketplace investors because every dollar you give comes back to you in the form of trustworthy, grounded reporting with a sense of humor. So please become a Marketplace investor today at Marketplace.org slash donate or just click the link in our show notes. You know, in times of trouble, you can always count on the Federal Reserve to give it to you straight.
1: I'm inclined to propose and support a 25 basis point rate hike.
0: From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kyle Risdahl. Wednesday, today, the 2nd of March, I'm pretty sure good as always to have you along, everybody. We will get of course, to the economic slice of the day's news that's being driven by events in Ukraine. But we start, as we not infrequently do, with the public utterances of one Jerome Powell, chairman pro tempore of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States. Pro tem, because he hasn't actually been confirmed for a second term running the central bank. But anyway, Powell was up on Capitol Hill today for his regular twice-a-year visit up there, said a couple of interesting things. The first one we already played, but here it is again. I'm inclined to propose and support a 25-basis-point rate hike. One basis point, again, is one one one-hundredth of a percentage point, so the Fed is going to raise rates a quarter percent when it meets in a couple of weeks. That is just about what everybody had been guessing But it is kind of rare for a Fed chair to be quite so explicit about what's going to happen. It is more common by far for Powell in particular to be clear about what he does not know. See also the war in Ukraine and what it's going to mean. We will proceed, but we will proceed carefully as we learn more about the implications of the Ukraine war for the economy. And real quick, just because it's kind of on everybody's mind Chair Powell was also asked about inflation and when it might fade even just a little bit. We've had this expectation, as as you all know, for more than a year and it hasn't actually come true. So we're 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 humble about the fact that we we can't really call with any any confidence the turn. He says that a lot, Powell does that whole thing about being humble. Wall Street, in point of fact, turned a bit today. A wartime rally, I guess. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. The thing about a global economy of which we are in... Is it those supply chains and the infrastructure and the regulations and the relationships? They didn't just happen overnight. They took decades to develop. And for as fast as the West has coalesced against Russia in the form of sanctions, cutting all of those ties, whether it's technology or car plants or oil pipelines, it's not just as simple as flipping a switch. A you know. marketplace is Amy Scott on the logistical challenges of divestment.
2: ExxonMobil has a 30 percent stake in Sokolene One, which began production in 2005. And Tom Sanzillo with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis says the company isn't just a passive investor. It runs the project on behalf of a consortium of Russian, Japanese and Indian companies.
3: They manage the day-to-day operations, the drilling, the staffing, the getting the product to market. And that's a, um, a big task.
2: And he says unwinding it safely and without environmental damage will be a big task, too. In a statement, ExxonMobil said the process would need to be, quote, carefully managed and closely coordinated with the co-venturers. In other words, it's going to take time. To try to stem the tide of foreign departures, the Russian government says it's imposing temporary restrictions on the sale of assets. Anna Mikolska is an energy studies fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute. She says it's not clear that will make much difference. BP, for example, expects to lose as much as $25 billion by dumping its stake in Russian oil company Rosneft. I'm not sure how much... Russia can do to stop companies
4: of getting out if those companies are prepared to just drop their assets
2: and take a loss. Would that be enough to change Putin's mind about Ukraine? Karen Alter teaches international relations and law at Northwestern.
5: I don't think
6: that's the significant hit that the Russian economy is going to have, that American companies withdraw.
2: Partly because other countries, including China, could step into the void. I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. Add commercial aviation to the
0: list of Russian industries that are in for a very tough time. And by very tough, I mean completely crippling. Boeing and Airbus have said they are not going to supply airplane parts or services to Russian airlines, Boeing and Airbus being, of course, the two biggest commercial jet makers in the world. Last night, you might have seen this. President Biden said the United States is going to join Canada and the EU and ban Russian planes from our airspace, neither development of which is conducive to actually having a functioning aviation industry. So we've gotten John Ostrower on the phone to talk all this over. He is the editor in chief at The Air Current. John, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Kai. So let's get to um, a little bit of history before we get to current effects. Back in the before time, before the bottom fell out of commercial aviation in the spring of 2020, how was Russian commercial aviation doing?
1: Pretty well. You know, it, it, it's really been a several decade process of modernizing the, the Russian fleet, and you know something, Boeing and Airbus and their engine suppliers, you know, benefited hugely from the peace dividend. I mean, look, this is this is, uh, absolutely the, the upside of the end of the Cold War for them as they got to go in and, and sell their wares.
0: Okay, so where are we now? We have Boeing and Airbus saying no thank you. We have airlines cutting off their partnership agreements. It does seem, as you wrote in The Air Current the other day, that this has happened very, very suddenly.
1: The plug has been pulled on Russian commercial aviation, period. I mean, this is as close to an evisceration of the entire industry there uh, that has ever existed on on this scale. I mean, denial of aviation is a very frequent weapon in economic combat. I mean, the first thing that happened to Iraq in 1991 was uh, the sanctioning of Iraqi airways. Baghdad was cut off from the world. And so we see this playing out over and over again, where nations use aviation as an economic weapon. In this particular case, uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, their dependence on, on Western, Western hardware to, to move around, whether it's aircraft, engines, parts, uh, lessors providing them airplanes, uh, or, or even uh, just Western suppliers providing to their own Russian-made projects. I mean, the, the dependence is, is tremendous.
0: Is there a downside of the sanctions in aviation to the west? I mean, we we know about gas prices. We're hearing elsewhere in the program today about wheat and grains, right? And it's going to cost Americans and the west more. Does that apply in aviation or are we going to suffer because Aeroflot can't get a plane off the ground in Moscow? Absolutely.
1: The modern aerospace business is phenomenally interconnected. And before nineteen ninety one and and the fall of the soviet union and really the the opening of china as a as a market for for global aerospace manufacturers um it really was phenomenally fragmented and again the modernization that has happened we have a, more or less erased uh in just the last five six days
0: so what does this mean then for global aviation getting back to the way it was in the before times is are, is it going to slow it down well that's exactly it um Global aviation
1: relies on two fundamental pillars that cannot be uh, ignored: peace and stability. Because huh. in, in absent that, people don't really want to travel if they're they're feeling like their either their well being or certainly their lives are are threatened. So you know when we think about the the fallout for both Russia, uh, but also the West, it's that commercial aviation has lived through. Uh, shock after shock. But ultimately, the trend in the last 30 years has been one toward increased openness and cooperation. And literally, we have gone backwards probably about 30 years uh, in in the blink of an eye.
0: John Astrauer is the uh, editor-in-chief of The Air Current. If you are interested in aviation news, that is what you ought to be reading. John, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Kay. Once he got past the 12 or 15 minutes he spent on Ukraine last night, President Biden's State of the Union was fairly true to form, right? Policy proposals, shout outs to guests in the visitors gallery and highlighting of his successes and reasons for optimism. One of them, optimism, that is the progress that's been made against COVID and what that means. It is time, the president said, for Americans to get back to work and fill our great downtowns again. San Francisco is one of those downtowns that could use a refill, which has consistently trailed New York and Los Angeles in pandemic weekly office attendance. Officials in San Francisco say they figure 15% of the workforce is going to be permanently remote. And there is a buzzword in commercial real estate right now. Right-sizing is what they say. And you can see that playing out in the city by the bay, basically finding the appropriately sized, usually smaller, of course, office space for a hybrid workforce. So Marketplace's Matt Levin took a survey.
7: Kai Shane is giving me a tour of a pretty rare site in San Francisco these days, about 200,000 square feet of office space that a company actually wants.
6: Just imagine this all full of really cool furniture and people enjoying hanging out, having a meal together.
7: We're at 101 California Street in San Francisco's Financial District, a 48-story downtown skyscraper. Last fall, the building's six-floor podium, kind of an annex-type thing, was leased by Chime, a financial technology company. Shane heads Chime's real estate operations, which means she's in charge of renovating this space by the first week of June, when Chime moves in and the great hybrid experiment begins.
4: We added
6: more bathrooms, and then we added gender-neutral bathrooms as well. So, so we did
4: fix that.
7: Beyond questions on the new building's dog policy and whether there'll be soft serve ice cream, Shane says she gets asked most about the bathrooms in the before times.
6: We were bursting at the seams, and there would be a line uh, for the bathroom sometimes.
7: But that was when pretty much every Chime employee was coming to the old building every day. Now Shane is expecting employees to come about three days a week, mostly Tuesday through Thursday. So even though the new office building is bigger overall on a per employee basis,
6: we actually need um, less space. So and this is this is the great downsizing that people are going through.
7: The company has more than tripled its Bay Area workforce since the pandemic to about 700 people. but Shane expects an average of 500 or so chimers to come in every day. That means in a non-hybrid world, about 200 more employees would be making morning latte runs or buying overpriced lunch salads or heading to Sam's Tavern for a late afternoon drink.
0: Yeah, you know, but we're usually full about the time.
7: San Francisco's an earlier drink in town. Peter Corteroli owns Sam's Tavern, a bar about a half mile from Chime's new headquarters. He also owns Sam's Grill, the seafood restaurant next door that's been around over 100 years. He says hybrid work is already changing his business. Fridays have fallen off the map, so now Tuesday seems to be our big day. Mondays are a little slow to get started for the week. Downtown businesses like Corderole's are at a disadvantage. Whereas restaurants in more residential neighborhoods could benefit from hybrid, not many people live downtown. Which is why Robbie Silver, head of the San Francisco Downtown Community Benefit District, says downtown needs to be less... Downtowny. We're outside a fire station on the corner of Sansom and Washington, just a few blocks from Sam's Grill. Silver is backing a proposal to add housing and other amenities on top of the fire station. You could have a gym, a restaurant, a coffee shop. And so I have to ask this who in the world would want to live <laughs> on top of a fire station?
3: You, you know, if in the unfortunate event there's a fire in the building, that's exactly where I wouldn't want to live. <laughs>
7: Whether you like sirens with your spin class or not, Silver's bigger point is downtown's foot traffic is never going to be what it was. But for all the hand-wringing about the future of downtown and the city as a whole, there's a certain type of San Franciscan who thinks the entire city was overdue for a little right-sizing. Gretchen Dieknicker has lived here for 26 years.
2: I think it's fine. Like, it was a very crowded city,
7: and so fewer is not a terrible thing. Deek Nicker was standing outside Sam's Tavern. When she went in, she didn't have to wait for a table. I'm Matt Levin for
4: Marketplace.
0: Coming up. The ruble will remain under a great deal of pressure. Oh, yeah, it will. First, though, let's do the numbers. Yeah, the sad, happy again. Dow Industrials up 596 points, one and eight tenths percent, 33,891. The Nasdaq up 219, one point six percent, 13,752. The S&P 500 grew 80 points, one point nine percent, 43 and 86. ExxonMobil filled up 1.7 percent. Apple up 2 percent. Ford Motor Company floored at eight and four tenths percent. You saw their big split news today. EVs going in a separate company. Matt Levin was talking about uh, office space. So brand new wine realty trust up 2.4 percent. Bond prices went down. Yields thus go up. The 10-year treasury notes 1.88 percent. You're listening to Marketplace.
8: This episode of APM Marketplace is brought to you by Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, the new Showtime series from the creators of billions. Based on a true story, strap in for Travis Kalanick's wild ride through Silicon Valley with VC Bill Gurley and board member Ariana Huffington riding Shotgun. Driven by disruption, Travis takes a win at all costs approach to transform Uber into a multi billion dollar tech titan that changes the world. But every surge comes at a price. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Kyle Chandler, and Uma Thurman-Star in Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, now streaming only on Showtime. Each week, the New Yorker Radio Hour unpacks what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers on topics including race and justice, American history, challenges to democracy, climate change, and more. To get context behind events on the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. A couple of stories now on a theme. Said theme being global commodities in time of war and what the heck. We start with perhaps the global commodity, oil, the price of which today, and if we just pick the global benchmark, Brent crude up almost 9% today, $114.30 a barrel. And yet... At its regular meeting today, OPEC+, Plus, which we ought to point out here, includes Russia, the group said today it is not going to ramp up production to help bring those prices down and will instead stay the course that it laid out a couple of years ago and increase output by the anticipated 400,000 barrels a day in April, which, given that humanity uses almost 100 million barrels of crude every single day, is kind of a drop in the barrel. But... We thought it would be good nonetheless to get a sense of where exactly the 40% of the world's crude that OPEC Plus produces actually goes. Marketplace's Samantha Fields got the assignment.
4: Oil from OPEC Plus goes all over the world Europe, the United States, China, India, Japan, South Korea. Amy Myers Jaffe at Tufts University's Fletcher School says European countries import about 2.5 million barrels of Russian oil a day, about half of what Russia exports. China takes a lot too. The big issue
2: that we're seeing now is that some buyers, especially in Europe, do not want to buy Russian crude oil because they're afraid what if sanctions come
4: or just as a moral support. So far, the U.S. and EU have not put sanctions on Russian oil and gas. After all, it is a huge part of the global market. But Ben Cahill at the Center for Strategic and International Studies says all of the other sanctions on Russia are starting to have an impact on oil
3: refiners don't want to buy Russian crude. Tankers don't want to take it. The banks don't want to finance purchases of Russian crude and petroleum products. And insurers don't want to get involved.
4: So a lot of those companies are basically self-sanctioning. And because of that...
3: If you add it all up, we're probably looking at around 2 million barrels a day in supply shortages right now.
4: And those shortages are likely to get worse.
3: We're in the midst of an oil market crisis right now.
4: Jason Bordoff at Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy says every time there's a crisis, people and governments look for a quick fix. And the
3: truth is the options are very limited. The most important thing we can do is not lose sight of the things we should be doing today that won't have immediate impact, but will make us more resilient to the inevitable future oil price spike that is coming.
4: Namely, he says, by reducing our dependence on oil. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace.
0: Global commodity number two in our very brief What the Heck with a War on series is wheat, future prices of which hit a 14-year high today. More than 25% of the world's wheat exports comes from Ukraine and Russia combined. And as Marketplace's Savannah Marr reports, any long-lasting disruption to those supplies is going to mean a whole bunch of not good things in a whole lot of places.
5: The price of wheat was already high and rising before Russia invaded Ukraine, says agricultural economist Joe Jansen at the University of Illinois.
3: We had a bunch of things that made markets relatively volatile to begin with.
5: Things like high input prices for farmers, strong global demand, and extreme weather. And now with two of the top exporters at war.
3: There's just a lot of uncertainty about this big source of commodity supply.
5: Countries in the Middle East and North Africa are most reliant on Russian and Ukrainian wheat, according to Michael Tanchem with the Middle East Institute.
1: Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, uh, particularly Egypt, is the most vulnerable.
5: He says Egypt is by far the world's largest importer of wheat, with most of it coming from Ukraine and Russia.
1: Every meal among Egypt's population has what's called esh baladi, a uh, round flat bread, that it's almost a social contract in Egypt, that a regime has to provide this at affordable, subsidized prices.
5: Tantrum says Egypt and other countries in the region will likely try to insulate the price of wheat products like bread from the surging price of wheat itself. Monica Marks, a professor of Middle East politics at NYU's Abu Dhabi campus, says that's in part to avoid unrest. At moments in these countries' history, Where prices of wheat-based staples have
2: become unaffordable, like bread, like pasta, for example, like couscous, political
5: instability sets off. Mark says we've already seen protests across the region over the rising price of food during the pandemic. The fear is that more could break out if the war stretches on and prices remain high. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Should you
0: have wanted to buy Russian rubles today, not that you would have wanted to, because, you know, sanctions and you basically can't spend them outside Russia, but should you have tried, you could have bought about 101 rubles for one American dollar. That is, the ruble here on day seven of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is worth less than a penny. It's dropped something like 25 or 30 percent since the war started. And one of the keys to understanding where the Russian economy is going as this war grinds on is going to be through understanding currency. Marketplace's Sabri Benishor is on it. Currencies are like toilet paper and copper and houseplants
3: and cars and anything else bought and sold. Because, firstly, currencies have a price, price tag, like at the grocery store, a price is In other currencies, that is what we're talking about when we say the value of such and such a currency is falling or rising. When we say that the Russian ruble is falling, we're saying that it takes more Russian rubles to buy one U.S. dollar. Chris Vecchio is a senior strategist with DailyFX. Not only do currencies have prices like bananas or a haircut, they are also affected by good old regular supply and demand. If nobody wants a ruble, the value goes down. The ruble is losing value relative to the U.S. dollar very rapidly. Now, normally, currency values flop around all the time, like the price of fish. That's what's called a free-floating currency. It just kind of bobs around based on supply and demand. But, but, there are things that countries do to manipulate supply and demand for currency and therefore manipulate the price. One of those things... Is raising interest rates. Yes, I know. What do interest rates have to do with anything here? But they actually do something to currencies. When interest rates are higher in one country relative to another, it becomes an appealing destination for capital to flow there. If a country's interest rates are super high, then you, an international investor, might make a lot of money investing in that country's currency. So you might buy that country's currency and you might prop up demand. The Central Bank of Russia has doubled interest rates for its main rate from 10 to 20 percent and is desperately trying to stabilize the value of the ruble. So when you hear the Central Bank of Russia raised interest rates to 20 percent, that is them saying to investors everywhere, no, 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 wait, don't run away. Buy more rubles. We will give you so much money if you do. So far, it's not working well. In fact, it's not working at all. Because most investors can't get rubles, even if they wanted to. These interest rates, they're they're
7: pointless for foreign investors.
3: Simon Harvey is head of FX analysis at Monex Europe. Sanctions have made rubles toxic in much of the world.
4: So what you've currently got is is an international market that basically no longer exists.
3: Harvey says Russia's sky-high interest rates are actually advertising to Russians inside the country, trying to get them to not ditch rubles. Now, there's something else countries do to manipulate supply and demand for their currencies, and that is create fake demand. Maybe fake is the wrong word. Artificially high demand, let's say.
0: The general idea
4: was that the central bank had this big coffer of money, and they could use the foreign currency to go into the market and buy rubles, basically, to offset the impact of the depreciation
3: the bank will literally buy its own currency to prop up demand. Kind of how people create all those fake product reviews to make a really crappy product look really popular. But the central bank of Russia can't even do this because most of its reserves are held at other central banks around the world and they've been frozen. And that is a big deal. Again, Chris Vecchio with Global FX. As long as Russia continues to press forward with its wanton aggression towards Ukraine, then the ruble will remain under a great deal of pressure There's no two ways about it. Now, whether all that has any impact on the war in Ukraine, different story. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshur for Marketplace.
0: This final note on the way out today, sanctions news from the soccer pitch. The Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich said today he is actually going to sell the English Premier League Chelsea Football Club. Last week, Abramovich tried to sidestep those sanctions by saying he was going to transfer stewardship of the club to a charitable foundation. One imagines... Given the tightening of sanctions and public opinion, Abramovich decided to sell and get what he could before it got taken. Net proceeds, he said, will go to, quote, benefit all victims of the war in Ukraine. Okay, we're done. Here is your moment of economic context. I saw this yesterday, actually, but to be completely honest, it got lost in my morass of open browser tabs. So that's on me. But let's talk war financing here, shall we? Because war is expensive. Bloomberg reports that Ukraine has raised the equivalent to $277 million in a war bond sale. 11% yield on those bonds. Our media production team is Brian Allison, Jake Cherry, Drew Jostet, Gary O'Keefe, Jeff Peters, Charlton Thorpe, Juan Carlos Dorado, and Becca Weinman. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. This Marketplace Tech Podcast is supported by Axonius. IT complexity is increasing, and traditional cybersecurity asset inventory approaches no longer cut it. Enter Axonius. Axonius correlates asset data from existing solutions to provide an always up to date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. Want to learn more and try it free? Visit axonius.com slash tech. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash tech.
8: 15.5 is the favorite performance management platform, period, because 15.5 helps HR leaders improve employee engagement and performance. Want to keep your top employees motivated to stay? Visit 15.5.com. Welcome to the new HR. An update on the information
6: and disinformation war in Ukraine. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Kimberly Adams. The internet is global, so even though the fighting is happening in Ukraine, the information wars battlefields are social media platforms, news sites, and even app stores. Since Russia invaded Ukraine last week, social media users have been sharing images and stories of the conflict. Mixed in with the feed are also coordinated disinformation and propaganda campaigns. This past weekend, both Facebook and Twitter announced they removed Russian disinformation networks, which had various accounts set up across other social media platforms. Courtney Raj is a fellow at UCLA's Institute for Technology, Law and Policy.
9: We have seen Russia perform amazing feats of disinformation in terms of creating new accounts, networks that are comprised of both bots and actual supporters, the creation of narratives that really promote uh, Russian superiority, diminish Ukraine and its president's um, ability to defend itself, and lots of videos, and including the use of humor to perpetuate pro-Russian narratives. Can you give an example? Sure. There's, you know, funny little cat videos where you have a a cat and a dog fighting. Um, One is Russia. One is the U.S. And you have videos where they're purporting to be from Ukraine. And they're actually from a whole different time period or a different country. Um, We've seen the same type of disinformation be used in Afghanistan and Syrian wars as well.
6: On which platforms is this misinformation and disinformation the most prevalent?
9: I think the better question would be on which platforms is it not prevalent? I mean, really, Russia has conducted an all-out information offensive, and it's just blanketing Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Google, with its disinformation and with its propaganda. But let's remember, not everything is disinformation. Some of it is, it's, you know, very you know, valid belief that it is in the right um, from its perspective. And so, you know, what you see is Russian propaganda spreading across social media networks and also demands of companies like the Apple Store or Netflix requiring them to carry Russian uh, propaganda stations and Russian media outlets, which these companies are uh, refusing to do at this point.
6: What role are sort of casual internet users playing in this misinformation campaign?
9: Part of social media use and internet use is showing, you know, what side you support and getting involved in, you know, kind of these global um events where you can become part of it by participating on social media. And so we see that in many cases, people who want to, say, show solidarity with Ukraine are retweeting or sharing um, information that is, say, pro-Ukrainian or anti-Russian, but maybe it's not actually accurate. Because the fact is, is you can't expect people to go independently verify every video. There's an entire industry that has evolved, Bellingcat, Amnesty, Amnesty. Um, internationals, tech program, all of these uh, entities that are designed to actually forensically investigate whether, you know, videos and images are actually accurately representing what they purport to be. You, casual users are not going to do that. The other thing is they're not going to fact check everything. And you can't expect that a person is going to fact check something before they tweet it. And I think a lot of cases, people just want to be on the right side. They want to show their support and solidarity. And so they're going to, you know, engaged with that messaging. And in fact, research has shown that it doesn't necessarily matter if something is true or not. People want to engage and show their support for a specific side or another and so that they're going to engage more with that content. How
6: is this campaign affecting the lives of people on the ground in Ukraine?
9: Well, they are very resilient, and they're also part of this information warfare because they are posting their own content on social media. They're showing uh, Russian military vehicles needing to be towed away or running out of gas. They are showing their, you know, incredible bravery in standing up against one of the world's leading militaries. And I think that's why it's really important, because you can't just cut off Facebook and Twitter and TikTok from Russia completely, what you want to do is to try to rebalance the power between a very wealthy and sophisticated Russian state operation and the ability of individuals in Ukraine on the ground to counteract that information with actual reporting and perspectives from their experience.
6: When you have an actual government that believes it's in the right, coordinating a campaign like this, how does that line up with the tech companies? Content moderation policies?
9: Well, first off, I think the content moderation policies are being created on the fly yet again as they face the fact that tech firms and especially social media platforms are integral to how war is conducted. You know, how should countries like Russia, like Iran, like China be allowed to use? open Western social media platforms to perpetuate their propaganda. That is a question they have not adequately grappled with, despite many examples of when they should have. We have seen Russia's invasion coming. Uh, Putin had been talking about it for several weeks leading up to it. And I think that what we're going to see after this conflict is that they're going to have to develop more proactive policies around content moderation for situations like this.
6: Ukraine's official Twitter account has been communicating with the rest of the world on how to help their effort, even by asking for cryptocurrency. What happens to those types of official accounts if Russia does succeed in its efforts to potentially change the government in Ukraine?
9: That is a great question, Kimberly, and that is one that I have been asking the companies since Afghanistan. And when we saw the Taliban take over there and take over, wanting to know what happens when a non-democratic transition of power happens, what happens to those accounts? And it seems like such a minor thing when we're talking about war and death and destruction, but it's not because we know how central propaganda and communication are to the war efforts. And the fact is, We don't know. And that's what I'm talking about when we say that they need to have policies in place before situations like this. And I'm quite shocked that um, despite having been in contact with Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Google over the weekend and asking this very specific question, what will happen to Ukrainian official accounts if Russia is successful? None of them responded None of them have a policy, none of them have a published policy, and they're really only prepared for peaceful transitions of power in the United States where they actually have a policy in place. Why don't they have an approach after Myanmar, after Afghanistan? This is not a new situation, unfortunately, and yet we see once again tech companies are winging it. Courtney Raj is a fellow at UCLA's Institute for Technology,
6: Law, and Policy. To Courtney's last point there, we reached out to the companies she mentioned Twitter, Facebook, Google, and TikTok. At the time of this taping, only Facebook responded, linking to its Community Standards Enforcement Report released yesterday. In it, the company announced the rollout of additional safety features to keep users in Ukraine and Russia from being targets online. Facebook also reiterated that while it's not a government entity, it is working with governments and, quote, responding to their requests to combat disinformation and harmful propaganda. We'll have a link to that report on our website, marketplacetech.org. We'll also link to a tweet from the encrypted messaging app Signal warning Eastern European users that the platform is still up and running and no, Signal is not hacked. The company says rumors of the app getting hacked could be part of a coordinated misinformation campaign meant to, quote, "...encourage people to use less secure alternatives." Now, to help avoid getting caught up in a misinformation campaign, the Media Manipulation Casebook website has a helpful fact sheet about Russia and Ukraine, pointing out some key details about the conflict and what led up to it. I'm Kimberly Adams, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM.
8: This episode of APM Marketplace Tech is brought to you by Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, the new Showtime series from the creators of billions. Based on a true story, strap in for Travis Kalanick's wild ride through Silicon Valley with VC Bill Gurley and board member Ariana Huffington riding Shotgun. Driven by disruption, Travis takes a win at all costs approach to transform Uber into a multi billion dollar tech titan that changes the world. But every surge comes at a price. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Kyle Chandler, and Uma Thurman-Star in Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, now streaming only on Showtime.